Hey folks, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host today, Peggy Guggenheim. The name Guggenheim is pretty much synonymous with modern art. That's thanks in large part to Solomon Guggenheim and his famous museum in New York City. Credit also goes to Solomon's niece, Peggy. She was a champion of avant-garde icons like Jackson Pollock and Brancusi and established influential galleries in New York, London, and Venice, where she eventually moved. Peggy Guggenheim also lived a unique personal life. She was married twice, once to the painter Max Ernst, and had, by her count, a thousand lovers. How did she become such an influential figure in the modern art world? What personal demons did she fight along the way, and what's her legacy? These are some of the questions Francine Prose takes on in a new biography. The book is called Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern, and it's out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. Francine Prose has been on Vox Tablet before. She was here to speak about Anne Frank. We're delighted she's joining us again today to talk about Peggy Guggenheim. Francine, welcome back to Vox Tablet. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me on the show. What led you to this subject? Well, I uh, it came out of a series of conversations with Eileen Smith, who's the general editor of the of the Jewish Lives series for Yale University Press, and we were sort of tossing ideas back and forth about who I might write about. And I had just when we started talking, I was just finishing, or maybe I just finished my novel Lovers at the Chameleon Club, Paris, nineteen thirty two, which takes place in Paris and during the twenties, thirties, and beginning of the forties. And there's a character in the novel who's very, very, very loosely based on Peggy Guggenheim. I mean, she has money, and she's an art collector, and she manages to buy a great deal of art at very reasonable prices on the eve of World War II. So those are the only things that my character had in common with Peggy Guggenheim. But I was really reluctant to leave the world of the novel. I was so attached to it and so fascinated by it. And one of the reasons I was drawn to Peggy Guggenheim was because she was still part of that world, that pre-war Paris art world uh, that was so fascinating to me. Also, uh, it just seemed to me that she was someone who's never gotten her due or who had never gotten her due. I mean, she was such an extraordinary figure. And and many of the other people in the um, in the Jewish Live series, Freud, Proust, etc., have been very well appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't think that she has. I mean, there's one quite terrific and fair-minded biography, but there are a lot of not so fair-minded biographies and very critical biographies. And even now, the things people say about her, how difficult she was, how promiscuous she was, et cetera, et cetera, seem to me to miss the 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 intensity of her achievement. Did you know the particulars of her life going in? I knew some of it. I mean, I'd actually read her memoir, which came out uh, first, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and, which is a fantastic book. It's an amazing book. So I knew something about it. And also I'd been to the, uh, the Guggenheim Museum in Venice, which is an amazing museum. I yeah, mean, you I just can't know. believe what her collection was like. So I did know that much. She's very well known for that uh, Palazzo in Venice, where she lived and where her collection was housed. Tell us a little bit about her background, her origins. Mm -hmm. Well, she came from uh, a very wealthy New York Jewish family, German Jewish family. Uh, actually, part of the, they came. Some of them came from Switzerland, but nonetheless, they were German-speaking Jews. Upper East Side. Uh, you know the um the our crowd crowd so all those extremely wealthy families were her friends when she was growing up and her parents friends and she was raised in that culture to be the wife of a rich guy basically to have parties to have teas to wear expensive clothing to care deeply about 
what china she used and what silverware and she was never going to do that she was always a rebel from the time she was a little girl her father was killed on the titanic and and that was expectably very traumatic for her profoundly traumatic and but from the time she was a girl and then through her adolescence she was determined not to do what her mother did and uh, so she became something quite different did she have an interest in art from a young age uh not really but she went to uh she went to work uh, she knew people who ran a bookstore in um, near Grand Central Station, and she, as her first kind of job, was in this bookstore. And the bookstore was was a magnet for all the people in in art and literature in in New York. So all these people would come through the bookstore, and she would meet them. And suddenly, this whole world of boho downtown Manhattan was open to her, and she, and she was not going to go back. How did she develop a particular interest, though, in modern art as uh, a cultural pursuit? Well, by the time she got to Europe, I mean, when she was again in Paris in the twenties, uh, all that all that was going on around her, and and she knew people who were involved. She knew artists. She had met a lot of artists. She knew uh, painters and sculptors. And one of the things people say about her, which is true, but it doesn't explain everything, was that she managed to find very very good advisors. So she had people all the way along telling her what to look at, what to buy. But she didn't really come around to being a collector until she was. Uh, well into her 30s. I mean, she was mainly married, she had two kids, having love affairs, uh, having a sort of, again, boho life, renting a place in, in rural England. And then after her, um, she divorced her first husband, and then she was in love for years with a man named John Farrar Holmes. And he died as a result of a kind of botched surgery. And after he died, she wanted to do something with her life, something other than being involved with men, I guess, and um, or or else she decided she could do something else in addition, <laughs> and um, and so she decided either to have a publishing house or an art gallery, and she decided a publishing house was too expensive and risky, and decided instead to have an art gallery. So, uh, so then she began to put together what would be Guggenheim Jeune in London, and then when the war broke out, or around the time the war broke out, she went back to Paris. But she favored, in particular, contemporary art, mm-hmm. or her contemporaries. Yeah. Was that because that's how she was advised, or was that sort of her natural proclivity toward the modern, you know, as a matter of taste? Well, partly it was because those were the people she knew. Partly it was because uh, her parents and their culture and society were all about the old masters partly because they were she did have advisors who were interested in in modern art and also i think uh from the beginning there was just a bit of competition with uncle solomon so and he was collecting modern art by that point so and they had a somewhat con- contentious relationship oh yeah and i mean solomon had a, a mistress uh who was very um uh opposed to Peggy and they had a they had a very contentious relationship. So so when Peggy asked, for example, to uh to borrow or show some of the Kandinsky's that um that the uncle had, the mistress said to her, you know, we would we're not a commercial organization. We would never sully ourselves with selling art. You're just basically a peddler of art and so forth. So and then, you know, on the other side of it, I still now can't go to the Guggenheim on Fifth Avenue without thinking about Peggy calling the museum or the Frank Lloyd Wright building, Uncle Solomon's parking garage. <laughs> and you can just see, you know, those coils, you can just see the cars kind of, you know, it's like a child's parking garage in a way. Yeah, I wonder what she would have made of the uh, new Guggenheim 
structures Bilbao. in Ab- yeah, Bilbao and Abu Dhabi. <laughs> she would have, I refined. think she would have liked them. I mean, she because she was so interested in what was modern, what was new, what was the the latest thing. I mean, when she opened her gallery, Art of the Century, on Fifty Seventh Street, it was wild. I mean, you look at it now, and and just it was like a huge art installation, or what's become installation art, but it, but it was a gallery. How influential was she at the time in the art market? Hugely influential. I mean, there were when you look at there's a, a marvelous book that's uh, that that charts every one of the shows that appeared at Art of the Century, and you just every practically every name that you've ever heard of who was an artist at that at that time, and many names that you haven't heard of since then were all shown there. I mean, Rothko and Pollock and and de Kunig. I mean, it just went on and on. Everyone. It's interesting because you make the point in the book and you made it earlier in this conversation that she definitely didn't want to be like her mother. She didn't want to be raised to be just somebody's wife and very proper and so on and so forth. And yet in her championing of artists in the art world, there are very few in her constellation who she really put forward. Did she reckon with that at all in her in her writings or did other people ever offer why uh, the balance of male artists versus female artists on her roster was so um, freighted? Well, actually, no. I, well, actually, uh, she had many, many all women shows at the gallery. I don't know, fifteen or something. And then there were. I mean, if you look at the number of women who showed in her gallery, it's actually quite large and quite impressive. The problem was is how few of those women, for reasons we can only speculate, became famous as opposed to the male artists she showed. So, so in fact, you know, one of the reasons um, that. Uh, she broke up with Max Ernst was she um, she had a show, I think, called 31 Women Artists or something, and she sent him, and he was a notorious womanizer. She sent him to visit the studios of of uh, all the women who she was showing, and he joked that he slept with all of the women artists except for Gypsy Rosalie, who wasn't home at the time, so he made do with the maid. And, and one <laughs> of the women he, uh, he went to visit was Dorothea Tanning, and he left Peggy for Dorothea Tanning. So, so, you know, right there, I mean, she showed Frida Kahlo. She showed a huge number of women. In your biography, you speak of a certain amount of self-loathing that she had in particular. I'm thinking about uh, your consideration of uh, her nose job. Mm-hmm. She felt like it was ugly and bulbous and Jewish, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, uh, how did her negative feelings about her Jewishness shape and influence her behavior in the in the world and in life? Well, I was really astonished, although I shouldn't have been, I should have known better, by by the amount of kind of constant, pervasive in many cases, low-level or not-so-low-level anti-Semitism there was around her. I mean, her husband, Lawrence Vale, uh, wrote a novel in which she, a character loosely based on Peggy, appears. And and the anti-Semitic quality of the narration and, and the way in which her concern with money... I mean, because in, in a way, it was like the perfect storm. I mean, she was a woman, she was Jewish, and she was rich. And those three things she really had to overcome because there was so much prejudice against her for that reason. And But, you know, it was all over the place. It was, if you look at Hemingway's um, The Sun Also Rises now, it's astonishing how much anti-Semitism is just unquestioned goes through the book. Or, or you know, I'm, I mean, when I was doing the Anne Frank book, there was some story about the Roosevelts, Eleanor and Franklin, who had gone fishing or something and... and uh, they caught a Jew fish, and one of them, I think Eleanor, said, oh, I thought we left the Jews at home in New York City. And he was like, ah. Oh, my God. So, so it was just everywhere, and it wasn't even questioned. It was just part of the cultural fabric. So, uh, so she certainly had to deal with that. 
um, because most of the people that she hung out with were not Jewish. So, what is a Jewfish? I it's a fish. I don't know. You know, it <laughs> probably has some other name now. <laughs> what uh, did she leave any clues in her memoir or in interviews she gave along the way of how? Uh, that felt or how she reacted to it or how she navigated in that sphere? Well, it was very complicated for her. I mean, you know, as you said, the nose, her nose was a big issue because you look at the pictures of her as a, as a child and a young person before she had this, again, botched nose surgery. As soon as she was able to leave home, really, she went to, I can't remember, Cincinnati or Cleveland had this, you know, wrecked nose surgery. But it wasn't unattractive. It was not unattractive, but she was made to feel so self-conscious and unattractive about it. But then uh, she had very mixed feelings. I mean, there's a there's a section in her memoir where she goes to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and is kind of horrified and is so, and talks about how happy she is to be away from those people. But, it, but you know, again, she came from a rich German Jewish family. So, so, so the prejudice against Eastern Europe European Jews or poor Jews or whatever wasn't original with Peggy. Right, and certainly she probably had very little uh, religious identification. No, no. In addition to her art collecting and her her iconic status in the art world, the other area which you deal with extensively in her book are her personal relationships Mm -hmm. and her sex life. As I was reading it, uh, it sounded like the memoir that she wrote was almost salacious, recounting in great detail all these lovers what was her objective, do you think, in being so public about her private goings-on? Well, yeah. I mean, she talks about a lot. Of, she had abortions that she talks. I mean, I can imagine how shocking it was to talk freely about your abortions in your memoir at that at that point. I Well, I think there were a couple of things going on. I mean, I think, first of all, she just liked men. So, uh, And I think also because she always felt that she was unattractive or unpopular or whatever, uh, I think she was always seeking kind of validation through love affairs with men. Um, and I think it was part of her culture. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book that I think um, was really important was was just the amount of alcohol that was consumed at that time. I mean, there was, there's been such a cultural shift because when you read about her life and her social life and the people she was around – Pretty much any one of those people would be now considered to have had a problem. There would have been an intervention. It was the entire culture then now, so you would have to have shut down the entire culture. And and in terms of violence, I mean, she was in several abusive relationships. In terms of, I you know, I don't even like the word promiscuity, but I guess that's the word one might use. In terms of that, uh, although you know, alcohol is is notorious for lowering down one's guard. So you know, you wind up in bed with someone and have no idea where, how you got there. Look at the drinks you had the night before. But she was she was also very aggressive in her pursuit of men. But again, you know, if she had been a male, none of this would even have registered or would have been a source of admiration instead of sneering as it was with, with Peggy Guggenheim. You said that the biographies that have uh, considered Peggy Guggenheim, all but one of them, you know, really sort of mm-hmm. didn't hold up. Is it because they focus on that? Are they sort of sexist in their uh, view of her as being promiscuous or, you know? Yeah, that was part of it. Mm-hmm. And and also very contemptuous. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, she was always the richest person of of the people she was having dinner with in a restaurant, let's say. So 
um, there was criticism all the way through her life of the fact that she would get the bill and she would add it up as if she was so rich that she should just pay it, whatever it was. Well, you know, it's not the most unreasonable thing for someone to do. So, you know, and then she was, it was complicated. I mean, money is always complicated. So uh, she would support people and pay the bills. And then when she felt that she was being taken advantage of, she would withdraw her support. So people would say, you know, she's so rich. How come she's not footing the bill for everyone all the time? Well, it was understandable why she might have had some doubts and self-doubts about it. I wonder for you as a biographer, how does having all that information about her personal life uh, affect the way you view her as a cultural figure? Or maybe you maybe you sort of answer that question. What do I want to say? <laughs> I have great have and had great sympathy for her and great admiration for her. And and honestly, I didn't care if she slept with 2,000 guys. That wasn't, that wasn't. I mean, in a way, it, it was admirable. She did what she wanted at a time when very few women did. But but the fact is her art collection is, is the reason why she survives and why I wanted to write this book and why I admire her so much. I have to confess there was one part in the book where I felt myself really disliking her. Uh, it's the war, World War II, the Holocaust is happening. She's in Paris at some point and she's drinking champagne you know, and uh, has to leave. But it doesn't quite feel that her leaving has quite the urgency or level of fear that it would for other Jews in Europe at that time. And her kind of cavalierness, um, or that's how it read to me, uh, made her seem so, I'm just going to say narcissistic and superficial. Obviously, there was much more going on there. Um, but how did you read that episode? Oh, it was a big lark for her. You know, she'd been storing gasoline on the balcony of her apartment, and she and her friend got in a car, and they drove south. But but I think also she was, what do I want to say, willfully naive about a lot of things. I mean, she didn't, she chose not to register certain things if she didn't want to. So what was happening to the Jews of Europe, I think she just chose not to look at. It. Even when she was in the South, when she was in Marseille uh, and Varian Fry with the Joint Rescue Committee, was doing extraordinary things, getting people out of there. And she was funding a lot of that. So she was actually giving money to, to the Rescue Committee. At the same time, she the fate of the Eastern European Jews didn't seem to register very much with her. So so you're right. I mean, she also, quite honestly, I think she was a difficult person, and she's come down as a difficult person. But, but the question is, does one want to emphasize her difficulty or her achievement? And I go for achievement. There must have been some reconciliation with Solomon or with his state as she approached uh, the end of her own life. She leaves the Guggenheim Museum, her palazzo, and her collection. Do you know what happened, what what alighted, whatever differences they had? Well, it was never a rupture, really. It was, as you said, contentious. So it was, she never really counted the Guggenheim Foundation out. And I think she was just looking at that point for the most secure uh, I mean, th- there was some talk that didn't last for very long about uh, making her daughter the the um, the uh, administrator of the estate. Her daughter was dead by then, so there was really no one. I mean, she and she trusted. There are certain people who were connected with the foundation, with her part of the foundation, uh, Philip Rylands, for example, who she trusted quite a lot. So she she made sure that her that the work was in very what she felt was in very good hands, and it has been. I mean, there have been some problems, of course, with her heirs and so forth. But but the museum is there and it's being very well administered. Let's speak briefly about her daughter and the tragedies in her life. Her her sister, her two nephews fell from a roof, although some people allege that the that, that Peggy's sister threw them off the roof. Her daughter 
eventually committed suicide or died. It's mm-hmm. unclear exactly of what causes. Uh, and there were other instances in her extended family of uh, terrible tragedies. Mm-hmm. How did she cope with these personal losses? Well, as anyone would, she was devastated. I mean, she was very close to her daughter uh, and and in some ways too close to her daughter. I mean, she at several points said uh, she's like a sister to me. Not Never a good idea. And and I think it was particularly vexed during the mar- her marriage to Max Ernst because uh, Max had a sort of flirtatious relationship with the daughter, which couldn't have been good for the daughter or Peggy. So so that was complicated. And And also I think the daughter... Uh, was always conscious of not having her mother's full attention or felt that she didn't have her mother's full attention. Um, She was much closer to the daughter than she was to her son, Sinbad. Uh, Although they used to spend summers with him when she was living in the countryside in England, but but Sinbad somehow, you know, his passion for soccer and so forth was so alien to Peggy, whereas the daughter wanted to be an artist. And and in in her palazzo in Venice, there's a room of the daughter's uh, paintings. And there are all these kind of theories about what happened to the daughter. I mean, all that's known is that her then-husband took the kids to school. They'd had an argument the night before. They slept in separate rooms. He came home. This was in Paris. The door was locked, and she was dead. Um, There'd been a lot of drugs involved. There'd been a lot of alcohol involved. Some people say she committed suicide. I've heard people say that she was murdered. It just seems unlikely to me. Uh, but it was a tragic death, and, and Peggy was, as I said, devastated. The art market today seems like an incredibly overheated place for those of us who <laughs> are not in it, like me. <laughs> when I read in the newspaper of you know a single painting going for you know tens of millions of mm-hmm. dollars, it just strikes me as crazy. Obviously, she predates the current art market, but do you think in some ways her uh, role as a gallerist and a collector – uh, set the stage for the kind of overheating we see now? Well, uh, in some ways, certainly. I mean, for example, I think, you know, Jackson Pollock was the first, I think, really modern celebrity artist. I mean, art artists moved into another realm. I mean, the fact that he was on the cover of Life magazine the, or Time magazine, I can't remember. The fact that he there was a film made about him at work and... Um, you know, there was later there were great disputes between Peggy and Lee Krasner about the value of his work and so forth, and and Peggy always felt that that she'd been shortchanged and as for the fees for his work, but but the artist as celebrity really began around the time that Peggy was dealing art, so, and she, you know she cert- that certainly wasn't ag- against her interest to have that to have the artist be a celebrity. So in that sense, uh, I think she did contribute to it. In doing this book, what did you learn about Peggy that you uh, didn't know before and that stays with you? I think, I mean, even though, as I said, I'd read her memoir before, I was really, really impressed by what a good writer I thought she was. I mean, there's a funny tone in that memoir. It's, it's, it is funny. It's humorous. It's wry. It's ironic. Uh, she has a great gift with language. I mean, I was interested to find out that she had been a very good friend of Jane Bowles, of Paul Bowles and Jane Bowles, because there's something about the kind of goofy tone of her memoir that reminds me of Jane Bowles's Two Serious Ladies. So I knew about a lot of the other things, but it wasn't until I really started closely reading the memoir that I was amazed, really, by what a good writer she had been. Francine Prose, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Francine Prose has written more than 20 books. Her most recent book is Peggy Guggenheim, The Shock of the Modern. It's out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. Go get a copy. 
Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thanks so much for joining us. 